Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And I had this little bit about talking about the fact that sometimes you look at your partner and you know you love each other, but you just get this little inkling that occasionally they think, but would I be happier as a melancholy widow? And then my wife actually came to the show where I was probably going to talk about that. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to ask her beforehand because I'll either drop it or... So I said, I've got this one bit where I just say, you know, that sometimes you look at your partner and you just get an inkling they sometimes think, but would I be happier as a melancholy widow? Do you mind? And she just laughed. She went, oh, don't worry about that. I've spoken to loads of my friends and quite often we just wonder if we'd be happier if you lot were dead. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the production editor at BBC Focus magazine. Comedians often go out of their way to highlight their own absurdities and shortcomings, just for the sake of the audience's entertainment. Because of that, comedian Robin Ince believes that comedy is a great platform from which to understand the peculiarities of the human race. In his new book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, he touches on trauma, anxiety and grief, as well as imagination, creativity and humour. He gets neuroscientists, psychologists and other comedians to weigh in on the quirks of the human mind. We talked to him about all of that, as well as about the role of comedy beyond just making people laugh, where to draw the line on offensive jokes, and where the comedy and tragedy are inextricably linked. Here is BBC Focus's editorial assistant, Helen Glennie, talking to Robin Ince. So, Robin, your new book is called I'm a Joke and So Are You, a comedian's take on what makes us human. So can you give me a rundown? What's the book about? Well, it started off, uh, I was up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and uh, one night I was doing a show called Cheaper Than Therapy, which was comedians uh, talking as comedy as therapy, sometimes just about actually having therapy, lots of different kind of stand-up routines. And then in the interval, before I went on with an American comic called Eddie Peppertone to discuss mental health and comedy, uh, the news came through that Robin Williams uh, had taken his life um, and so that was it was kind of a one of those those strange moments and certainly you know Robin Williams was a, a huge influence on me and one of my my icons when I was a, a teen and only two months before that Rick Mail had died and um, the next day I was looking at the way the newspapers reported it and they kept reporting about the fact that uh, oh you know the tears of a clown tragedy of, of a comedian as if it's it's just part of the normal narrative that, of course, another comedian takes their life. And I thought that this was just it's, it's a very shallow take. And certainly with Robin Williams and a lot of the um, the health issues he had to just say, oh, you know, the way it is with funny people. Uh, they spend so much time making other people laugh that eventually it turns them so bleak. Uh, it got me just to thinking more and more about the fact that I think comedians are sometimes exaggerated versions of human beings but there's nothing particularly different about them apart from the fact that perhaps sometimes they talk about things more often they have 
a card that's basically is given to you when you walk on stage. The fact that if you want, you can sometimes talk about quite weird things, uh, eccentricities that you'd probably keep quiet in just a normal social circle environment. So they're quite good at using to go, right, hang on a minute, they're talking about that. It seems to be making a link with the audience. They are exaggerated versions of human beings. So if we work backwards, we might come across uh, a few more of the strange foibles of, of what makes us human, but which many of us keep private. So is this sort of using comedians as, uh, because you describe them as exaggerated versions of human beings, it's sort of a case study for the whole human race? Well, that's what I hope is that by talking to comedians, uh, I mean, I've been a comedian since I was 21 years old. It's been, you know, pretty much the whole of my adult life. It's uh, an, an obsession of mine. I've I've loved watching, you know, since being a little, like all little kids, you know, for my generation, it was things like, you know, the, the goodies, which I loved, and then not the nine o'clock news, and then the young ones. And uh, it'd been such a major part of my life. And I started to think more and more just about the fact that, you know, do I have some specific foible that has meant that the only thing that I can do, and in many ways, the only thing I really want to do is be a comedian or are the journeys that end up making us who we are. There's many more turnings uh, on that particular uh, path. And um, so, yeah, it it was just trying to, I think, in some ways, work out just how different comedians are and then looking at the fact that I think that most human beings share and annoy, you know, I'm always fascinated when I, when I stand on stage and for the first time talk about an idea where I don't know if the audience are going to go, hang on a minute, mate, you are just weird. Uh, and that moment when you, the first time I talked about uh, impulsive thoughts, for instance, that moment when you are holding someone's baby and suddenly out of nowhere, you get a little image of your head of throwing the baby down the stairs and you go, oh my God, I think I want to throw babies down the stairs. And I did a whole long piece uh, about that. And what was fascinating was not merely the number of people in an audience who would feel that they could admit to having had that sensation, uh, but also the number of people who came up to me afterwards and went, oh, my God, I always thought that I had this urge. I, I, I thought that I was perhaps some kind of psychopath. And it turns out I'm not because I'm sure you probably know impulsive thoughts very often. They're, they're not in any way a desire to do that. What they're doing is your brain playing your public information film, which basically says you're holding a baby. So remember, when holding a baby, don't throw it down the <laughs> stairs. But we misinterpret it and we go, oh, no, I think that's an urge. And it's not. Uh, and so that was, a, you know, a, a, an interesting thing to be able to talk about uh, on stage and in I mean, it ended up becoming about half an hour of, of, of a show because so many people had different, oh, well, I had this experience. My granddad was telling me all these memories of, of the terrible war that he was in, and suddenly I had a burning urge to kiss him, I thought. You know, all of these different things were coming out. And, you know, most famously, there's a, there's a scene in, in Woody Allen's Annie Hall where Christopher Walken's talked about the idea of uh, that sometimes when he's driving in a car, he just wants to swerve it into the oncoming traffic. And that is uh, a very normal impulsive thought as well. So it's things like that that just made me realise that I'm in a fortunate position where I am uh, paid uh, to talk about what many others might possibly think was potentially madness. That's nice. um, That sort of presents comedy as being quite a reassuring thing to go to as well as an enjoyable thing. Well, there's so, I mean, it's really interesting. I've just been to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival last year as well. It's, it, it's a fascinating, I think what I've, I find particularly intriguing is, is the post-World War II comedians. There were many comedians who I would say were keeping a secret, of course, because of our laws. Uh, for instance, homosexuality was, was illegal. So you had 
quite a few comedians who on stage they could kind of be camp and stuff but they were never actually gay uh and they had you know a certain front they were creating a carapace they were equally people who were who were damaged who kind of really had post-traumatic stress disorder i think from the war things like so they were making this front they were creating a mask you know peter sellers being one of uh, the, the great and truly strange examples of that whereas now we have a lot of comedians who rather than create a mask it's the moment they can go on stage and say i have a problem with this thing or i have you know more and more comedians i've seen talking for instance about suicide uh about social anxiety uh about irritable bowel syndrome all manner of things that uh and and about sexuality and so it's interesting there's a kind of change from comedy being a mask to comedy being the point where you go i can drop my mask off for a couple of hours now and i'll pop it back on when i get on the train interesting okay so this is quite a big brief for a book how did you go about doing it who did you talk to what did you decide to look into well, I suppose what happened, first of all, was I wrote 200,000 words for the 120,000 word book and the editor went, oh, my God, I think we're going to need another editor. So that, that was, <laughs> it, was, it was really it felt like that moment in Jaws, you know, we're going to need a bigger boat. Um, it was, first of all, working out what I was particularly going to take on, because, of course, it can't in any way be a, a, a complete overview. And I also didn't want to water it down too much so that I could deal with everything. I wanted to deal with things that I felt. Well, part of it was that in each chapter, I hope there's some personal story of my own experience of my own psychology. So, for instance, when I, of course, I start with birth and I end with death. Um, And the the thing of what we become and why we become who, who, who we are always interests me. Because, again, in comedy documentaries, very often there will be that moment. But, of course, Kenneth Williams never got on with his father and that led to him doing silly voices. Or the fact that Eddie Izzard, you know, lost his mother when he was very young and, and has spoken more and more with age about the fact that he he does see the audience as replacing the love that he lost as a seven-year-old boy. And so I was, and for my, my personal experience, I was trying to think, well, what, what might be? And by the way, I also make it very clear that uh, I'm not saying at any point one incident turns someone into who they are because I think that's, you know, one of the things I'm trying to show, I hope occasionally in the book anyway, is what a hodgepodge it is that turns us into the humans we are. But there may well be something that happened that becomes a a core part of developing who we are. And for me, it was being in a car accident when I was just before my third birthday, uh, which led to my mother being in a coma and various different illnesses, etc. then then continued um, after that. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, when you're nearly three years old, and I thought it was my fault that I'd caused the car accident. One of those stupid things. When when you're a, a child, your action, you immediately think, may well cause the next action. So the fact that I was looking for my toy machine gun under the passenger seat uh, made me think, oh, no, it must have been that that led to a car coming in the opposite direction at high speed. And I look more and more back to the fact that as a little boy, I blamed myself for that incident. And I could kind of feed into different ideas about hypervigilance that I might experience or indeed that, you know, the hope of of making people happy, having some kind of controlled situation. So in each chapter, I try and find something that has happened to me, uh, personal experience of of, uh, social anxiety, uh, of impulsive thoughts or of the way that I use inner voices um, and then use that as a hook to go into other people's lives and how they've used things that sometimes could be seen as extreme eccentricities to turn into um, very often pretty successful careers. 
But I think that's one of the things that I'm interested in is the fact that very often the things that we think are, there's that great line that Richard Feynman talked about, which was uh, when he was talking to a monk once and they were talking about physics and the fact that knowledge can lead to uh, wonderful things, but the same knowledge can also lead to things like nuclear weapons. And the monk said to him, the keys to heaven also open the gates to hell. And I think that in some ways actually hangs over the book because in some of the oddities that may well drive people towards obsessive compulsive behavior or indeed even obsessive compulsive disorder sometimes if you're able to tap into it you may well be able to turn it also into something which is creatively useful and I, one of my favorite things that ever happened at a gig i can't remember if i write about this in a book but um this man came up to me and he, and he said uh, he, he looked very angry he said I, I came to your gig and i'm rather angry now um i've always thought that uh, i was uh, a little bit odd but i've just sat and watched you and sat with your audience and uh, I found out we're all odd so now I'm normal uh, he was obviously joking but the way he delivered it to me was like oh my whole life I thought well at least I'm eccentric and it turns out we're all insane and I think that's one of the important things which is some of the the, the worst human beings that we see and I'm not going to mention particular kind of political leaders or whatever I think of people who don't face up to their absurdity it's such a, a an insane thing in one way to be a living creature that is aware that it it's you know it's been born that it will die that we look up to the stars and we ask the questions that we do and you know and we're aware of other people's gaze and all of those things it's a kind of absurd situation you know that's why there aren't many creatures like that on this planet as far as we can see there is only one that is as fully developed in it's self-consciousness as human beings. And um, and I think that does make us a, a, an intriguing case study. Now, you mentioned starting at childhood, and I know you say that, that no one experience determines who we become, but did you see certain childhood experiences in your research that might predispose people towards becoming comedians? Well, there are certain things that uh, there does seem to be a higher percentage of people who were adopted, for instance, uh, who are comedians, that, that does go a little bit above the norm. Uh, there does seem to be slightly above the norm. Again, it would depend on, on defining things, but uh, what you might call prepubescent uh, major incidents in terms of loss of a parent uh, or messy divorce that kind of thing. but of course also there are an enormous number of people who experience those things and don't decide to go and stand in front of uh, strangers seeking their approbation but certainly there was a bit of a pattern and um, my friend joe brand talked about the fact that uh, when we first ever had a conversation about mental health and of course joe spent her early part of her life as a mental health nurse so she's been you know right up close to people who've been diagnosed uh, with illnesses and she says i don't necessarily think the comedians are uh, are mentally ill but what she does say she said i think they're all damaged now of course what that might be is that actually everyone's damaged but at least we've got a voice to talk about the damage and that's part of what i'm trying to work out as well i'm still still caught up in it because one side of me doesn't want i don't want to I, I feel very arrogant to go oh well of course i'm different to the others because you know because everyone is is struggling in in different ways but i do think you know it, it is interesting there does seem to be a certain level of pattern uh just a little bit above the norm uh in terms of some form of major childhood event so you took part in an experiment where you played the radio 4 game just a minute in an mri scanner can you tell me about that experiment what was it all about 
that was fascinating. That was at uh, UCL, and uh, and the idea was that uh, it was trying to find out what parts of really a public someone who improvises, someone who makes stories up. So predominantly comedians, but also sometimes uh, public speakers generally. And it was just to get in the scanner and see if, as you were, so it's what we would do. Just a minute for anyone who doesn't know is basically a, a, a panel game, an incredibly tricky uh, panel game on, on Radio Four that I've I've sometimes been on myself. And and uh, you have you're given a subject, and then you just have to talk about that subject for a minute without deviation. Uh, with, oh my God, what is it? I should remember now. Without deviation, uh, without uh, I've, I've started doing pausing. You can't pause. Uh, you can't go off the topic. Uh, only repetition, deviation, and whatever whatever Nicholas Barson says is pausing. Pausing. So they they did the same thing with us lying in scanners. Uh, where they would give us a subject only for 30 seconds because the test group apparently can't talk rubbish for a minute. It's an interesting thing where you realise that not all members of the public can talk rubbish for ages. You know, we comedians don't have many great skills, but waffling on and on and on, as you're discovering now, is is, is the one <laughs> thing we have got. Too many blinking verbs in our heads. And uh, and then it was just to find out what parts of the brain are, what's going on. And what they basically found was, well, unfortunately, they've never managed to publish it because some of the comedians who went in the scanners still couldn't get rid of their competitiveness. Now, you didn't have to be funny. You just had to talk about ginger snaps or trifle or, you know, the Eiffel Tower or whatever, 30 seconds. But people got so well. Oh, I wonder if the other comedian in here got loads of good laughs. So I bet. So they jiggled around too much so the scans couldn't actually be used, which, you know, in, in some ways tells you a lot about comedians, really, and about human competition, which is you fail to actually do the experiment properly for any effective use because you're so busy thinking about yourself and whether you're winning um but it was it was interesting because what they did see was generally people who publicly speak a lot not as much blood needs to go to certain areas of the brain in terms of the uh control of the mouth and the throat and various uh, because it's the exercise that we take all the time is talking 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 uh which frees up more blood to go to other areas of the brain but there were other things as well within that, but it was it was an interest. So, so there's no special, much like when they put a bunch of Carmelite nuns into brain scanners to find out if there was a God spot in the brain. And they, they had to go in, I think, in, into a brain scanner and they'd have to uh, think about Jesus or God or something biblical. And then the uh, scientists would be, ah, there you see that section of the brain there, just, just by the hippocampus is obviously where the God of God lives. Uh, in the same way, what they found out is there isn't a special bit because, ah, now this little cluster of cells there, they're the jester cluster of cells and uh, that's where comedy is made. So you volunteered yourself for brain scans a few times. Were you hoping that you'd find something out across all of these experiments? Do you know what? The only thing I'm always hoping every time is I go, I have been having headaches for a while, so I do hope they don't. So that's you know, my main thing is, is that I don't want that moment where they go, ah, there appears to be a shadow. Um, but I just I found it fascinating the first time that I got a chance to actually have my brain scan. Again, to see the hardware, to get this three dimensional view of what makes you you and of course how much of it is not even involved in the you-ness of you it's often you know there's, there's an old line by ken campbell uh you know you is just one of the things that your brain does but actually being able to to view that picture of that bit which is unavailable at any other time apart from through through scanning it just 
it makes you think about the fragility. I think of it. I mean, when I did a thing with Sophie Scott, Professor Sophie Scott from UCL at the uh, Royal Institute Christmas lectures, where I had a blaster, just just a, a little magnetic blast to uh, the motor region of my uh, my brain on the left hand side, and it stops you being able to talk. And again, it just reminds you that the complexity of it all so that's most for, for me it's not that i was really hoping that there would be something that would be found that would explain the whole terrible uh tragedy and joy of my existence i just thought there that's the bits and that's the complexity of it all and somehow that leads me to believe that i exist yeah i i remember myself going for my first um mri scan for a, a science experiment and then seeing the brain afterwards and being like oh thank god it's there well, that's the other thing. Yeah, you do go. It definitely exists. There's because that, that was a little bit where the, there was a moment of thinking about Schrodinger's brain, where whether you know, for my whole life I lived without a brain, but as long as it was unobserved, uh, I would continue living. But the moment that oh, you haven't got a brain, then I would be dead. So yeah, <laughs> Schrodinger's brain part of the scanner did did come into my thoughts the first time I had it. But then since then, every time I can have a go, I just I just love doing it. I like the piece of it as well. I know people don't like it, but some of them the the sound of the magnets, the machinery. But I find just the coolness of just lying there and just obeying whatever instructions of whatever particular command as they're trying to look at, you know, what's going on. I, I find that, uh, do you know what, it's probably the nearest I get to a religious experience. You looked into imagination as well. You seem, it sounds in the book like you have a bit of a fascination with imagination. And when you're coming up with stand-up sets, I imagine that you've got to do a lot of inventing things and your imagination plays a really big role. What did you find out when you were writing the book about imagination? Well, this I, I, again, it's, it's one of those things where so, so many times people will say to you, but where do you get your ideas from? And, of course, that's the brilliant thing about brains is that you uh, there is no particular place where you go, because otherwise every writer would be able to do this. Every comedian would be able to do this. We would sit down for two hours a day. We would go to the place in our brain where we make the funniest jokes. We would deliver those jokes. And then we would go, that's it, done for the day. And now I can do my set tonight. Of course, the problem would be that then everyone would be able to do that because we'd know exactly where they came from and I think what I find you know one of my favorite conversations with with Alan Moore the the great writer of uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen of V Vendetta and Watchmen and many others and Swamp Thing um he has one of the most active imaginations that I know I mean there's in fact where I'm sitting now there's a, there's a bookshelf which is only his books all of his comic books his novel that is as long as uh, the Old Testament it's most recent one Jerusalem um for him, it, you know, there's, he's fascinated about how he can travel around his mind, how he can go to what he calls idea space, how he can then walk into something which is almost a three dimensional landscape and something which sometimes he feels is almost shared in a kind of uh, Jungian uh, way. But even those things are us merely imagining what our imagination might be. Uh, and why, you know, why some of us feel the necessity of expressing what we imagine to me is the most intriguing part of it. Why, when you come up with an idea, do you want to share that story? Do you want to share that joke? Why? I mean, some comedians, for instance, with their imagination, they require sitting down with a pen and paper and they just write and they write and they write and they write until they find the correct joke form that they're looking for. There's quite a few joke people that I know who do that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a method of writing, whereas I can't really do that. So everything I do is I just have loads of scribbly bits of paper and then I go on stage and I start working out in front of people. And what I don't understand 
70s. Uh, why, if I've spent three days going, still can't come up with an idea of this joke about people who are flat earthers. And I'm looking for this kind of particular way as well, which can be enlightening. But, oh, why can't? And then you stand on stage in front of people and suddenly you go, oh, there it was. It was in there all the time. That to me is part of the joy of it is where have all of these things been? Why can't we access them immediately? Why do we have to bang our heads on the wall? I mean, writing this book was agonizing at times, trying to find what I hope are the right sentences. And because uh, that was a very different process to the way that I do stand up. But I also think one of the lovely things about imagination is, is it'll be interesting to see where the next generation goes, because both Alan and myself and quite a few other people that I, I talked to just said it's um, it, boredom was such a necessity. Nothing was as boring as a Sunday in England in the 1970s. You know, the the need for that. Right. I'm going to have to. The, the video games have not been invented yet. Uh, and or at least my mum and dad haven't bought one for me. Television's not on all the day and I wouldn't be allowed to watch it. I now have to go and sit in a tree and find some way of making this tree entertaining. And I'm interested now to see where that imagination goes with people who are playing Minecraft and doing all those things who have a lot more uh, interactivity with other people's imagination uh, and how that changes things. But the main thing I think that I found with everyone that I spoke to, Noel Fielding as well, which is there is there, there is an urge which cannot be defined, which is I just need to create things. You know, for, for Noel, he actually can feel quite physically sick if he, if he hasn't got to, you know, I need to paint today. He'll have to create something, that sense of getting something out of your head. And I think that's where imagination is, is useful for those who feel they have to use it, which, which is I've got this thing in my head and it begins to hurt if it's been here, in here too long. I found when I took a break from stand-up, there were only a certain number of days I could take off before I thought, oh, but I've come up with this idea and I really want to share that idea and I want to see if that idea works. I want to see if that idea has something in common with other people's ideas. I just want to do it. So it's not an agony in any way, but it, it well, I mean, it can be, but it is, it's that bit where it, we don't seem to be able to nail down why any particular path that specifically leads to why some of us want to just share as many ideas as possible. But also know that one of the things that I find most fascinating about imagination is one of the problems very often is that what you've imagined will never be as good once it's come out of your head. Uh, that's another thing that I think is not common of all people who create things. But there's, there's a great thing in, in a book by Joyce Carey that was turned into a film by Alec Guinness called The Horse's Mouth. There's a moment where the painter has spent the whole like a month painting this incredible mural and finally he finishes and he looks at it and for just a split second he is happy but then he turns his head falls against the wall and he goes but why doesn't it look like it does in here and I think you know that's another thing which is imagination we keep going back to it because uh, we keep trying to improve and every time you think you've come up with the right idea six months down the line you go that idea is weak that idea is bad need more ideas so did you manage to come up with any um, techniques for uh, being able to create things or be able to sort of facilitate that idea generation process that were common amongst lots of comedians or that you might start doing more in your own life? Um, I think the, it is in the end, it just comes down to very simply, you just have to do it. You have to find some form of deadline. You have to find some way that you go, right. I mean, that that's for a lot of people. That's why they go on comedy courses. I think is if you go on a comedy course, it turns out that at the end of every week, you have to perform for five minutes. Now the rest of what they're taught may be of no use, but suddenly they've got to stand in front of people who've now become their peers and they have to. So that idea of, and procrastination, that, that part of the problem is there are people like Graham Greene, the, the, the author Graham 
Green who could get up in the morning, he would go, right, I'll get, get the writing out of the way. And he'd write a thousand words. And then he'd go, right, that's a thousand words. And he would stop sometimes mid-sentence. He'd go, that's the thousandth word. And now I can go off and I can play Russian roulette or do whatever, you know, gamble or do whatever he wants to do. Um, and other people spend the whole day not doing what they're meant to be doing and then suddenly going, oh, now at 11 at night, I found what I was looking for and suddenly 3,000 words come out. And I think so actually finding the different system, you know, Nick Cave used to have that. Nick, Nick Cave counted in some ways his his writing of, of, of lyrics, of film scores. Uh, I think he's only recently stopped doing it, but he would get up and he would go to the office. And he would sit in his office and he would have a nine to five day of writing some of the most beautiful songs in the world. And then at the end of the day, he'd done his job of work of writing these beautiful things. But it was both a job of work and a job of art. I think that's one thing that is very useful that I would say is quite common is to have a separate space that is not the rest of your living space to have somewhere where you go. And in terms of the actual creating the solid form. And I think that's an important thing. And get off the Internet. Get off the internet. Stop arguing. Stop arguing with moon hoaxes. What are you doing? You're not going to persuade them. It doesn't matter. Make something beautiful instead. It's good. It's good advice. Yeah, you talk about the the boredom thing. People aren't as bored these days. We're so stimulated. Um, and what effect that might potentially have on idea generation and then comedy as well. What's your prediction for that? Where do you think that's going to go? Are there good things about these technological advances that we've had that will make up for the fact that we're lacking that boredom? Yeah, I think there's uh, so many of the games that I see kids playing are, they're not just interactive as in, you know, shoot them up. They're interactive in terms of creating worlds. And I think we're, at so, you know, I've reached an age where the default position would be, well, of course, children nowadays, they won't have any imagination, blah, blah, blah. And that's the default position of all middle-aged people, unless you work against it. Looking at the way my son's imagination works, and he spends quite a lot of time having screen time and stuff, but I would make sure there's a cut-off point as well. He seems to have as as rich and ridiculous as imagination as I had when, if, if not richer, you know, as, as, as a 10 year old. So I think what, what might, what can, can be, sometimes I worry slightly about a level of narcissism that, that can rise up in, in the creative process. But I think people will still keep writing beautiful. People will still be wanting to understand why the world is as it is. It doesn't matter how many video games you've got in front of you. And that probably is an archaic term, by the way, video games. That probably makes it very clear that I'm 49 years old. Um, but you'll still have moments, you know, whether it's existential dread or existential joy, we're still going to be trying to work. We're, we're never going to, I, I don't think we're going to end up in that oldest Huxley brave new world where we're just going off to watch the feelies and we're taking our soma and we've somehow reached this drug sense of, uh, of, of, of happiness. I think there will always be enough people who go, but why is this as it is? I mean, it's like when you see the teenagers, uh, some of the teenagers in America, for instance, that they're proactive reactions to what's going on in terms of, uh, of of mass shooting, all of those things, there are still enough people out there who are not happy just to sit contentedly pressing two buttons and going back and forth and blowing up some monstrous zombie alien. Um, now, one of the things that I found really interesting in the book was your discussion about offensive jokes and one of the things you say i'll quote you here is that a joke is a shortcut to understanding someone's ethics morals and belief for you are there things that are too serious to be joked about it's never about the seriousness it's about i mean i think sometimes it's why would i want to make that joke um 
so for instance when uh frankie boyle there was a, a big case a while ago i think it was in reading as far as i remember frankie boyle was just making really quite unpleasant jokes about people with down syndrome um my theory is that that doesn't help anyone that doesn't get you know idea of going yeah but if we don't talk about these you know sometimes we have that from the free if we don't talk about these things and these things get hidden well they don't have to be hidden and there may, may well be very clever jokes to be made uh about down syndrome but he wasn't making them and so personally i would go why would you want to make that and, and i talk about my friend in fact who i've actually you probably only have a proof copy of of, of, of the book i'd imagine it's only just been um uh done but it's um i dedicate the book to barry crimmins who i interviewed for that chapter and barry is someone who has talked about child abuse on stage he's talked about some of the most uh terrible atrocities uh committed by governments uh he has taken on he's he ended up in in washington uh fighting aol uh he is in no way what someone would say is a snowflake or was sadly he, he died uh earlier this year um but we were talking uh and he said he thinks very carefully about what he says so uh because and he told me this this story where he said one day he was doing a gig and uh the couple in the front row just loved it they were having such a great time and and he thought oh, it's really nice they're really laughing a lot. And, and afterwards he gets chatting to them at the bar and he says oh i'm really glad you enjoyed that they said, yeah we had a really great time and and said oh yeah i'm, I'm glad you're happy he said yeah we only come out once a year and he said this couple he said, you only come out once a year they went yeah yeah we we have a, a child who's severely disabled and there's only one person who can look after uh our child and um so this time we thought, well, let's go to some comedy. And the first two acts on, they kept saying retard this and retard that. And we just were very uncomfortable. And then you came on and very quickly, we just knew you weren't that kind of person. And he talked about, you know, the fact that words are shrapnel. And I don't think that means that you can talk about anything you want. But I think you have to think about the damage. Is it worth upsetting so are you happy? Is the joke funny enough and pertinent enough to go, oh, do you know what? I don't care about the three people who are crying at the back. And I, I do. And I think about that a lot. You know, there's there's nothing that, that I've wanted to talk about that I haven't talked about on stage. Uh, there's nothing that I've stopped myself talking about on stage. But sometimes I've come up with a joke and I've thought about it and I've gone, nah, do you know what? I don't want to do that one. That doesn't seem to it. So I, I, that's my personal, and I know that obviously someone like Ricky Gervais, who I interviewed, for the, but you know, it's a very different take on it. Which, which you know, I I don't necessarily really uh, agree with him on that. Tim Minchin, I mean, it was quite an interesting journey from from Ricky's take, which is is pretty much yeah, jokes a joke and, and and this kind of thing. Uh, and then you get Tim Minchin, who thinks very seriously about because he's written some very powerful pieces. Uh, and he thinks very carefully about the way that he he uses his humour and his songs. And then then Barry again, who's who's had it in both his life experience and, and comedic experience, he's he's really taken people on. Uh, but he also would think every time he came up with a certain kind of joke, he'd think, yeah, do you know what? That might do more damage than good. I, I think comedy is really powerful. I think it can be really useful. And I think it is, you know, when you get, it, it can give permission to sometimes people in the audience to get a sense of, of you know, of, of how they can express themselves as well. And I don't think you should censor yourself, but I, I see nothing. If you have the, one of the things with free speech is if you have free speech, then you have to, you shouldn't just go, Oh, it's free speech. Say anything I want. Free speech is something that has been hard won. So, Boy, oh boy, you know, use it well. 
sometimes. But it's that thing where you, you have to, again, about the effect that a joke can have and the fact that I don't have, you know, I don't have permission to, I, I can drag myself through the mud and make myself look as ridiculous as I want to. But every now and again, I have to think about, have I represented that person fairly? And is you know, and that's, and I think about your know, ideas of fairness and tolerance and all of that, that, that was preying on my mind quite a lot. And I'm still worried now because the book's not out yet. And I'm like, oh, God, what if, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got a copy now that I can hand to my dad. Is there anything I said that I shouldn't have? It's a strange thing, actually, which is you can share an enormous amount with strangers. And I found that in stand-up where, you know, I can stand on stage and I can talk about some really ridiculous things in my life. Um, but if one of my family's in, I go, oh, God, I can't talk about it tonight. So I can share with 500-plus strangers but, oh, no, they actually know me. There's a genetic link. It's like my wife came to a gig where I had this joke. When I took a little bit of a break from stand-up, I talked about the fact that uh, um, my wife found out from reading an article in a newspaper. I was out in Australia. She was back in England. And she, like, rang me up. She was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're going to give up. Said, oh, no, you can't do that. Oh, how are we going to live? And all these things. And, and I said, no, it's going to be fine. I've got other ways of making money. It's not a problem. And then I realized what she was actually saying was, oh, my God, you're going to be around the house the whole time. When is he going to realize that I love him? But from a distance, I've made a graph. It's very specific. And I had this little bit about talking about the fact that sometimes you look at your partner and you know you love each other. But you just get this little inkling that occasionally they think, but would I be happier as a melancholy widow? And then my wife actually came to the show where I was probably going to talk about that. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to ask her beforehand because I'll either drop it or so I said, Look, I've got this one bit where I just say, you know, that sometimes you look at your partner and you just get an inkling. They sometimes think, but would I be happier as a melancholy widow? Do you mind? And she just laughed. She went, oh, don't worry about that. I've spoken to loads of my friends and quite often we just wonder if we'd be happier if you lot were dead. So that was <laughs> a very useful. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was another thing that I... I mean, now my the, the main thing that has, has, is, is triggered in me now, of course, is all just all of the fears that I talk about in performance and in creativity, which I write about in the book, are now tangible again because, of course, I'm just terrified of, uh, you know, will people find the things that I hope in the book? Will they see something that I don't think is there? Will they be angry or will they, you know, th th at this point of, of publishing, you think, oh, what are my two destinies? Will I be hated or ignored? So this kind of links back a little bit to the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning with the, uh, tr you know, traumatic childhood experiences that some comedians have. Do you think there is sort of an inextricable link between tragedy and comedy? Uh, I suppose, yeah, it's that bit, isn't it, which is uh, you, you slip on the banana skin before you manage to put the dagger through your heart. Um, there is, you know, both of them, it's a bit like horror story, you know, short horror stories. And jokes are very similar, for instance, where, you know, a lot of short horror stories lead up to a punchline and their punchline is, 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 you know, tragic and horrible and grotesque. And uh, our punchline is, is, is ridiculous and absurd. So in some ways, we're all walking towards different punchlines. It's just some of them don't have a laugh track at the end. Now, so with all of your work that you've done for this book, talking to scientists and psychologists and other comedians as well, are you now, could you sum up for us what you now know about yourself, what you found out about yourself through writing this? I do think that I've found out, it's made me focus a lot more on that event that happened to me just before my third birthday and thinking, and, and it allows me to play around with ideas of why my social brain is 
as it is. And I think it's made me realise even more. In, I mean, in terms of the shows that I've written while I was writing that book, and I've, I've written four different stand-up shows that I've toured around and the new one that I'm, that I'm just about to tour around. And it's made me it's made me think even more about how important comedy can be and how important it can be to the audience and how for my, for a lot of it for me is, is the idea of giving permission that if someone who is publicly speaking, someone that you, you know, you'd like, you've paid to go and see or whatever talks about something that really sticks into you and really has that moment of, of, of resonance that can give you permission to then go out and, you know, think, right, well, I want to create this or I feel happier being who I am uh, or I'm not the only one. That, and I, I think a lot more about, I mean, that's in, in some ways, that's only something that I think lies underneath the book, really. But it is about the fact that you've got to accept your absurdity. We're such strange, strange creatures. And uh, if you do start just going, would well, you know what? I'm absurd. And I reckon that that person sitting opposite me on the train, they're probably absurd as well. And who knows what's going on. And it just makes it, I find just a little bit easier when you realise the preposterousness of it all. That was Robin Ince talking about the quirks that make us human. His book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is available from Atlantic Books now. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. The November issue of BBC Focus magazine is on sale now, and in it we find out how spider bots could help reveal more about Neanderthal brains. We also reveal how wolves communicate using facial expressions, explore the intriguing world of microbes in the British gut, discover how lava lamps are linked to election hacking, and find out more about the British spaceport. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.